This morning, I'm going to make you a guarantee as we start this new series called Standing in the Storm, a look at the book of 1 Peter. Rarely do I ever make these kind of guarantees, but I will make this one this morning with complete certainty that it will be fulfilled. Are you ready? Here's the guarantee that I... Are you really ready? Here's the guarantee that I'm about to make you. That at one point in your life as a Christian, you will find yourself standing in a storm of life. It is a guarantee. It is a certainty for you and I who are Christians following Jesus Christ. We know this for sure. It has been said of Christians that either you are just coming out of a trial, you find yourself in a trial, or you're just about to enter into a trial. It is part of the Christian life. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 7 that everyone will face storms in life. And he challenges us, asking us, how we have built our home to stand or to weather those storms. If our homes, that is our life, is built on the rock, then during the storms of life, we will stand. If our lives are built on the sand, that is the philosophies, the ideologies, the thinking of this world, during the storms of life, our house, our life, will fall, and great will be that fall. This promise is made in Matthew 7 to the believer and to the non-believer. And the difference between the two is that one will stand and one will fall. In 1 Peter 5.12, the theme verse of this book is that Peter is writing this, that the grace of God may be that foundation in which you stand firm upon as you go through the storms of life. And this morning as we look at the salutation, the opening two verses of this letter, we discover the one who is addressing and the one who is being addressed. And to understand both this morning is imperative for our uh, understanding of the impact of this letter. When it comes to storms, also known as trials, troubles, and tribulations that we face here in life, we can often be overwhelmed by such things. As those illustrated images are given to us in the Gospels of the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee and the sea raging around them to the point where they feel that they are at the brink of death, the boat is taking on water, the wind is resisting them every inch of the way across the sea. Often we feel that way in our lives as the circumstances of life beat against us. However, though, Unfortunately, today, many Christians see these circumstances, these storms, these trial, troubles, and tribulations as mere obstacles to obtaining a certain standard or a quality of life. 
These trials, troubles, and tribulations Peter will show us and demonstrate for us are not obstacles merely ripping you off of a standard or a quality of life here on this earth. These storms, these trials, troubles, and tribulations are not obstacles, but are opportunities. They are opportunities for you to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. They are opportunities for you to be a light onto the darkness around you to show people and to demonstrate to people Christ. We are not exempt from suffering simply because we follow Jesus Christ. In fact, we are promised suffering as followers of Jesus Christ. But if we reduce those sufferings, whatever they may be, whatever form they take, to mere obstacles that we are just begging God to relieve us of, we miss the whole point. We do not understand that these are opportunities that are working in us for a greater glory. They're refining us. They're chastening us. They're allowing us to conform into the image of Jesus Christ and therefore are dynamic opportunities within our lives. Now, I don't, for any means of the sense, am I saying to trivialize, trivialize, that's even worse, (laughs) what you're going through. I don't want to diminish it. I don't want to say to you that it is nothing. But I do want to say to you is, please, consider your perspective of it. And if you are simply crying out to God, God, please alleviate this from me. Take this away. Then maybe God hasn't answered yet because He sees this as an opportunity to bring you farther along in your faith and in your depth of relationship with Him. And so Peter writing to individuals, as we will discover this morning, that are going through suffering to no fault of their own. It isn't something that they have brought upon themselves. It is something that they find themselves experiencing simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter writes to them to encourage them at such a time. And so we begin this series looking at the book of 1 Peter, a series entitled Standing in the Storm, with the salutation, the greeting of the letter. And in that culture, the greeting was to address the recipients and to introduce the one who is writing. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, a man who needs very little introduction if you are familiar with the Bible. For the Gospels write and mention and speak of Peter only second 
to Jesus Christ. He is mentioned so often throughout the New Testament. To understand this letter, we first must understand the man who wrote the letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Often when we think of Peter, Paul, John, James, whoever it may be, sometimes we have uh, done them the disservice, I believe, of elevating them and exalting them to an image that we find within a stained glass window. But let us remember that these were men like you and I. They had their strengths, they had their weaknesses, they had their times of great faith and times of lapse of faith. But Peter was a very unique individual. He was first introduced to Jesus by his younger brother, Andrew. Andrew seemed to be a man who was constantly looking for the next prophet of God to arrive there in Israel and to follow and to listen to that prophet's teaching. For Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. But Andrew had an older brother who didn't seem to be nearly as concerned with these things. He was very pragmatic and practical in thinking. Peter was a fisherman, and history tells us he was a big guy. A big guy. And he was a blue-collar worker. What mattered to him was working hard and putting food on the table for his family. He often did not get distracted, history tells us, with the political affairs, though he was completely, completely irritated concerning the Roman oppression and, of course, the taxes that they leveled against the Jewish people. In fact, it has been said that there was one particular person that Peter hated. That's a strong word. It was tax collectors. In fact, history also tells us that when Matthew was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Peter really had difficulties with it because Matthew was a tax collector. He was one of those kind of guys that you would imagine that after work went to the local uh, pub before he met Christ. Watching the, you know, Jerusalem football team playing Damascus. He was one of those kind of guys. Big guy, tough guy. The Bible says that when the nets were so full from Jesus showing the disciples how to find the fish accurately and overwhelmingly, that all the disciples together could not pull the nets in, and yet Peter went out there by himself and yanked those nets full of fish in by himself. I just picture him being one of those guys, oh, would you guys just get out of the way? I can do it better myself. Tough guy. I admire Peter greatly. There are times that Peter was so um, willing to trust the Lord. For it was Peter who said, Lord, if that's truly you walking out there on the Sea of Galilee, let me come to you. And Peter was one of the only ones, the only one that was willing to get out of the boat and to make the trek across the water. He was part of the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, allowing uh, Jesus allowing them to see the resurrection of the young daughter of the, of the ruler and also the transfiguration. 
And Peter held a lot of awards, for he was the most rebuked out of all of the disciples. And he also held the reward for rebuking Jesus the most and telling him that he was wrong. Jesus had, I'm sorry, Peter had a motto. It was to speak first and then to think. He had a t-shirt that says, point, shoot, and aim. This was Peter. And we love him for it. It was Jesus who was, I'm sorry, Peter that was so presumptuous at times to tell Jesus not to go to Jerusalem when he discovered that Jesus would be crucified there. It was Peter who said to Jesus, please do not wash my feet. There is no way I'll have you wash my feet. And then when Jesus says, you cannot be part of my kingdom unless I wash your feet, Peter says, go, just give me a whole bath then. Scrub me down. But there's one event in Peter's life that truly prepared him to write this letter. And it wasn't an event of a high point of his life where his faith excelled. It was a low point. I believe there's one point in the life of Peter that changed his life forever. It was that moment that he resisted the information of Jesus when Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows this evening. And I remember Peter said previously to that, that even if everyone else denied him, Peter would never do it. Lord, I'm never going to do that. I don't care what everybody else does. I'm not going to do that. Now think of this big burly guy saying that to you. I'm never going to do that. Peter, John, Jesus said, Peter, 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 I prayed for you. Satan's wanted to sift you like wheat. Oh, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And sure enough, Peter, this big burly man, was confronted by these antagonists and those who would provoke him and scare him in the form of a little girl. When she asked, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? It was one of the three times that Peter said, no, I am not. And after the third time that Peter denied him and hearing the cock crow, the Bible tells us that Jesus and Peter's eyes met for a final time before the crucifixion. History tells us that Peter was ridiculed after that by the people. That as Peter went by, people would make the sounds of a rooster crowing to remind him of his failure. And we find this big, burly fisherman, confident in his personal abilities, confident in himself and so forth, reduced to the point where he is simply weeping like a child, grieving over what he had done by denying the Lord three times. But after the resurrection... The angel said specifically, go tell the disciples and Peter that the Lord has risen. And then there came an event, a moment in time after all that had taken place and all of the totality of the life experiences of Peter came together. And we find this in John chapter 21, if you turn there with me for a moment, in verses 15 through 19, that I believe changed Peter's life forever. 
It was this restoration of Peter that prepared him to write the letter in which he currently is writing to those who are suffering, to encourage them while they are suffering in hopes that they do not deny the Lord in the weight of the suffering as, Christ, as he did. Peter's hoping that this letter that he is writing, this encouragement that he is giving, will allow them to stand under the incredible weight of suffering that they are experiencing because he does not want them to experience what he experienced and be grieved over the fact that they have rejected or denied Christ. In verse 15, Jesus and Peter alone now of John chapter 21 And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, by the way, in in, uh, that language means flat-nosed. I don't know if that was part of his profile or not. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter now out of that heart, that pastoral, that shepherd's heart, as Peter had always been a leader and a spokesman amongst the disciples, and in Acts chapter 2, after the receiving of the Holy Spirit, Peter went out on that portico, he went out on that balcony and he gave that message Uh, announcing the arrival of the Spirit, answering the questions of those who mocked, and 3,000 came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Peter transformed by his life experiences into the man that God wanted him to become. First lesson for us this morning, that you are a work in progress. And it's not only your successes, but your failures that will define that work. And it's often in our failures that God works the greatest in our lives. Now, this is not me setting you forth to go and fail. It is to set forth an idea of grace and expectation that even though I do fail, God is still working in those failures to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. He is never going to give up on you. For he's the author and finisher of your faith. He is working in you through all the circumstances of your life, 
for good. And that good is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So when you read the life of Peter, let us be encouraged by that man. For we see his great highs, his great lows, and in the end, he became the man, the person that God wanted him to become. And this guy then writes this letter to those who now find themselves suffering abroad under the weight of persecution to encourage them to weather the storms of life, to weather the suffering in which they are experiencing, allowing them the opportunity to umbrella themselves in the living hope of Jesus Christ from the storm of life allowing them to stand firm when everything else is falling down around them, allowing themselves to stand in faith instead of denying the Lord, proclaiming the Lord, and glorifying Him in that moment. That's what Peter's objective is for this letter and for you and I this morning and this time together. He wants us to take these not as obstacles, but as opportunities to proclaim the grace of God to the fallen world. Well, now we know our author. But now we also have to come to know our recipients, those who are being addressed by this letter. And the information given to us is extent. To help us identify these recipients will therefore help us identify the circumstances in which they are facing. Now here in the ESV version of the Bible, the words that they have chosen to describe these people are somewhat misleading because of our understanding of the term exile. We think of one who has been banished from their country, one who has been banished from their homeland for some reason, usually of a wrongdoing of their own. But that's not what's intended. That's not the profile that we are actually given in the original language. And it's because of our um, lack of understanding of the word exile and its completion. But let me give you another rendering, if I may, from the Net Bible. For Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those temporarily residing abroad in these various regions who are chosen. And so we discover the identity of the recipients that are being addressed by this letter, therefore helping us to identify the circumstances in which they are experiencing. So who are these people abroad, those temporarily residing abroad in these different areas. Well, let us know first and foremost that these areas are in a section of land called Asia Minor at that time, which is now known as Northern Turkey. They were Gentile regions. And this is important for us to understand the dynamic of their circumstances to help us understand the letter. But who are they? Were they Gentile believers? Were they Jewish and Gentile believers? Or were they Jewish believers? Well, these three areas, I'm sorry, three of the five areas are mentioned one other time in the Bible, and that is in Acts chapter 2. After Peter preaches 
to the people in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost. And again, remember, people make pilgrimages from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. We find three out of the five areas mentioned here in our text, mentioned there in Acts chapter 2. So undoubtedly, these are individuals, Jewish individuals, who got saved at Pentecost and then went home afterwards. Now we also know from history and from the internal and external evidence that the book of Peter was written around 64 AD. Peter is in Rome. 1 Peter 5.13 gives us indication of that. Mark is with him. And as he is in Rome with Mark... He is writing this letter. Now, 64 AD in Jerusalem was a significant time. We're only six years away from the dismantling of the temple there in Rome in 70 AD. But a second um, piece of information is given to us in our text concerning these individuals and that they are called part of the dispersion, which means ones who have been scattered abroad. This is a term that is used also in James 1.1 when he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings, he says. We also read of these who are dispersed in John 7.35. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So they already have a familiar people group that are known as the dispersion who are Jews who are displaced around Israel there in the Gentile regions. It is these individuals that Peter is writing to. It is these individuals that James is writing to. People away from their homeland. People who find themselves as a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner in a foreign land who are trying to reside and trying to get by in life away from the home that they know so well. But undoubtedly, there were also Gentiles amongst these individuals that Peter is also addressing in kind. For let us understand that at the time that this letter was written, a transition was going on where it went from the establishment of the Jewish society to the church... And the church was made of Jews and Gentiles, one within one body. This was a transition that just didn't happen overnight. And of course, it was the Jews first who received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it went on to the Gentiles and so forth. And so now you kind of have a mixed bag. Primarily, though, he is writing to the Jewish people abroad with the Gentiles in mind also who are amongst them to encourage them about the weight of suffering that they are about to experience or currently experiencing. Because in 64 AD, there was an event in Rome that took place that I believe spurred Peter to write this letter documented well in history, we know that in 64 AD, a large part of the city of Rome burnt to the ground in very suspicious circumstances. It was so suspicious that investigations began and the credibility of the emperor Nero at the time was seriously 
uh, tarnished because of it. Just previous, in 63 AD, Nero wanted to start expanding his, his personal home and his uh, palace there in Rome, but it was surrounded by older homes that were being, you know, lived in and residents occupied, and the Senate would not allow him to just take the land. The Romans had certain rights at that time. And so he couldn't expand his palace. He couldn't expand his personal home. And then all of a sudden, a fire took out most of those homes that were in question, except the home of Nero and his personal friend, Tetilius. Those were the only two homes that didn't burn. But when Nero started to see that he was coming under suspicion, he needed a scapegoat. He needed a scapegoat. And that scapegoat became the Christians. And he began to openly, formally accuse Christians of setting this fire as an attempt to assassinate him and led to one of the greatest persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire. And I believe that Peter is writing this letter because that wave of persecution was about to rock the outer regions of the Roman Empire, including Asia Minor and the Christians found there within. And as they were anticipating this wave of persecution, this wave of, uh, uh, of tyranny and, and uh, suffering... Peter immediately writes this letter and gets it out to them by way of messenger to encourage them to stand in the storm of life that they are about to experience. To remind them of who they are in the person of Jesus Christ. To give them an umbrella of hope to shelter them from the storm that is about to come upon them. And so these exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, far away from home, disconnected from their national identity, separated and alone and in a very vulnerable place, to say the least, they were just sitting there waiting. As Nero proclaimed across the Roman Empire, and he asked for the governors of the Roman colonies to assist him in the persecution, the arresting, and the slaughter of these Christians for their arson attempt and assassination attempt upon his life there in Rome. These are the individuals that Peter is addressing. And the profile given to us in history and in the world helps us to understand what Peter wants to convey by saying that in which he says. And the very first thing that he reminds them of is that they have been chosen by God. That they were elect, chosen by the Father. He encourages them with this information. He wants them to know that even though they are separated as Jewish individuals from their homeland, and let us understand in the Jewish mind, Israel, Jerusalem, and the Jewish faith, 
they were interwoven in a way that they were almost inseparable. And being away and their identity lost in that regard, Peter is reminding them, you are chosen by God. You are one of His. Taking them out of their temporal perspective and placing it once again on eternity, allowing for the hope of eternity to comfort their hearts at that primary moment. Elect by God. Verse 2. This election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. David Gusick, one of my favorite pastors, wrote, God's choosing is not random or uninformed, but according to His foreknowledge, which is an aspect of His omniscience, this foreknowledge includes prior knowledge to our response to the gospel, but is not solely dependent on it. When we speak of the theological understanding of foreknowledge, we often reduce it and simplify it to our personal understanding of foreknowledge. And I would like to explain to you this morning, if I can, the difference between the two, which therefore allows the foreknowledge of God to be so much more spectacular than we ever simply imagined. When we think of foreknowledge, we think of one standing in a particular position, looking into the future and learning something that they currently don't already know. The reason for this discovery is because of the understanding of time. Time, on our perspective, is always viewed in a linear manner. We have past, present, and future. It is three points upon a linear line. And foreknowledge, from my perspective, would be me standing in the presence, turning to the future, taking out a magnifying glass, allowing me to see into the future, and now learning of something that is yet going to take place that hasn't already taken place. So there is a moment in time where I am absent from that knowledge and then gain that knowledge. And it's simply due to the fact of my position within that linear time frame. However, when it comes to God, God is not on a linear time frame. He is on an eternal time frame. The symbol for eternity, that being of a figure eight or also of a circle, has no beginning or end. So the foreknowledge according to God is not that God was once without that information, looked into the future and then discovered that information. He always knew it all the time. It isn't a surprise to Him. It has to be that way if He's going to be omniscient, knowing all things and seeing all things at the same time. Now this isn't something that I am just creating to sound um, interesting or to stimulate your thinking. This is actually based upon an Old Testament verse found in Isaiah 46. If you turn there with me. The eternal perspective of God allowed the writer of Isaiah, who Isaiah himself is, in verse 9 of chapter 46... Starting in verse 8, that's the beginning of the thought. Remember this and stand firm, the Isaiah writes, Recall it to mind, you transgressors, and remember the former things of old. 
For I am God, God says, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay? Do we get the idea that God is on an existing plane all by himself? There is no one equal or greater than God. And in verse 10, because of his position in the Hebrew language rendered in this manner in the English, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Meaning, and the Hebrews understood it this way, that God was all-knowing that he knew the beginning from the end before the beginning and the end ever existed. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew everything, how everything was going to take place. And it wasn't only the fact that he was enlightened by knowledge by the effects, or I should say by the events, simply creating a cause and effect relationship. He aptly demonstrates that he was the one who purposed it all from the very beginning. Now, if that's not enough to blow your mind away this morning, I don't know what is. But there will be a test on this afterwards. So when people talk or they believe that the foreknowledge of God isn't sufficient for the process of election and that somehow this diminishes His sovereign being, I say to them, it is your lax understanding of what foreknowledge is and how foreknowledge looks from the eternal perspective compared to how it looks from our temporal perspective. Now, if you think that I understand all of this, wow, I really like you you for giving me that much credit. Hey, but I think I've read somewhere that God's ways are not my ways and that his ways are higher than mine. I don't understand it all. 30 years of studying the Bible, I wish I could tell you I have it all down pat, but then I would be reducing an infinite God to a finite mind. And then, therefore, if I did, and if I could, he would no longer be the infinite God of all creation if he was simply able to be contained in the finite understanding of the individual. From the foreknowledge of God. God not only knew them from the beginning, he set them aside for his purposes and chose them. And yet the door is open for all to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the moment they do, they find that they are elected and predestined from the foundations of the world. And we'll leave that up to God. I like what D.L. Moody said, God save the elect and elect some more. Let's go, Lord. We believe that gospel is for everyone. For God said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. And I'm satisfied with that. But let us not reduce God to our own understanding. Let him be God. And the moment we do that, we then can be comforted by the things that we are told about him. Because he is God and I am not. And therefore, if I may, let me read this to you in the light of all that we have just learned from Paul. Ephesians 3, 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we shall be holy and blameless before him. 
in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Paul praising God for being God. And Peter says, you have been elect by the foreknowledge of God. Not only did God, not, he knew you from the, before the foundations of the world, but he also knew that you would be scattered abroad in these various areas. And God is with you as you are abroad. Because God has chosen you. But it, only, it wasn't only God the Father working on behalf of these Christians. It was also the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who drew us out of the world into the body of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit that took us from death to life to darkness to light. It is the Spirit setting us apart and sanctifying us for the use of our Heavenly Father. The Spirit of God who will reside with us always who is once with us, then in us, and at one point can come upon us and fill us to overflowing that we may serve and glorify our Heavenly Father by the life in which we live. And these are acts of the indication of our election, of our being chosen by God, that the Spirit now resides in us as the Spirit has been given to us, as Ephesians 1 will go on to say, as a guarantee as a down payment, assuring us that when the Lord returns, we are His. So it isn't only a work of God the Father, but it is a work of the Spirit, but it's also a work of the Son. Notice this. For obedience, this purpose of sanctification is for obedience to Jesus Christ, for for sprinkling with His blood. In the Greek, it is rendered that we are set aside to be obedient to Jesus Christ with the sprinkling of his blood, meaning this. We're going to fail, right? We're not always going to be perfect. We're going to unfortunately sin, but when we do, we have an advocate who is our propitiation, as John told us. And it's by his blood that we are cleansed. In the Old Testament, three times the sprinkling of blood is mentioned. First, to initiate the Old Covenant in Mount Sinai. Secondly, to, for the ordination of Aaron and his sons as the first high priest there in Israel. And number three, for the purification ceremony of one who is being cleansed as a leper. And David Gusick makes this incredible insight, and he says this, that notice that the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood upon us has done the same three things. Number one, it has initiated a new covenant, no longer written on stones, but on the tapestry of our heart. Number two, we have all become priests in the heavenly nation, and we can go directly to God the Father through our ultimate high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And number three, like the leopard, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all corruption and sin, past, present, and future. And each one of the Trinity working on our behalf to bring us to become the people that we need to be to stand in the wake of the storms of life. 
let us notice what Peter has done. He acknowledged their current circumstances. He's saying that he understands what they're going through by giving their identity up front within this letter. But he's also reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ and everything that they are experiencing at this moment is temporal in the light of eternity. So as we close this morning, I say to you, Peter changed their perspective and will introduce to them once again their living hope in Jesus Christ, which will act as an umbrella to shelter them as they go through the storms of life. When the world hopes in something, let us be honest for a moment with ourselves. Think this through with me. When the world hopes for something, they are hoping in possibility. They're hoping that things work out the way they want them to. It's simply a possibility. We have a 50-50 chance or whatever the odds may be. So their hope lies on a foundation of possibility. And therefore, it can be ever-shifting. And it is never capable of allowing them to stand when they need to stand firm in the course of the wake of a storm of life. But for us who are Christians... We do not stand on possibility, we stand on certainty. And that certainty is our foundation in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what the storm of life does. It doesn't matter if it comes from us from above, from the side, or from below. It doesn't matter what direction that storm chooses to take. The rock that we stand upon will never falter and never fail, and therefore we can be certain in our hope in Jesus Christ. And that certainty allows us faith and peace when none can be found rationally and logically. It surpasses all understanding. So I'd like to close with this remark, if I may, and sum it up for you. I'll leave it up on the screen behind me. Remember that the Father chose you. The Spirit sets you apart. And the Son cleansed you with His own blood. These reminders of God's love combined with the hope that they create can comfort and support us when any suffering comes. When any suffering comes, these can support us at that time. For we, like them, are simply sojourners. We are strangers in a strange land. We are foreigners in a foreign land. But one day we will be home with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in heaven for all eternity. And in the light of that hope, let that shelter you as we go through the storms of life, that we may be witnesses and glorify our God, not even in times where things are going great, but especially at times when things are not. That the world may see you And know that there's something radically different about you. And let that be a testimony to them that you are one who is truly a follower of Jesus Christ.